0: to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to John Courtney about his political history of the 1957 and 1958 Diefenbaker elections. John Courtney is Professor Emeritus of Political Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. He is currently Senior Fellow in Residence at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan campus. He has written extensively on political institutions, royal commissions, and elections in Canada. His newest book, Revival and Change, the 1957 and 1958 Diefenbaker elections was published by UBC Press in 2022. John, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, Greg. Nice to uh, chat with you again.
0: been a number of books on Canadian elections, including those elections in the 1950s that you're writing about here. Why did you decide to research and write this book?
1: The UBC Press have decided to put together a series of books on critical elections in Canadian history, starting in 1867. The series is called Turning Point Elections, And there will likely be about seven, eight books in this series over the course of, what, two or three years, something in that order. And mine is one of the first to appear. They asked me to write on 57 and 58 for a variety of reasons. I have done studies of leadership, that sort of thing. And Diefenbaker Baker uh, was very much a Saskatchewan man, and my office happened to be located at the University of Saskatchewan in the Diefenbaker building with access to the Diefenbaker archives. Mm -hmm. So all in all, it kind of made sense, I guess, for them to approach me, and I willingly accepted.
0: Well, that's wonderful. Um, Let's start then with John G. Diefenbaker. You and others have described him as a prairie populist, and then you go on on page 53 of your book to describe what I think are the characteristics of a populist leader. Can you summarize what these characteristics are and how well Diefenbaker fits or does not fit these features?
1: The principal characteristics of a populist leader are someone who uh, would bypass the normal institutional frameworks or the normal institutions of politics and speak directly to the people. Uh, so there's a direct relationship between the politician and the people that is what we would call unmediated. The second thing is uh, they are powerful orators, and certainly that was true in Diefenbaker's case. He was an an extraordinary orator, and it was generally agreed that probably one of the greatest of the uh, prime ministers in that field. The third point is they are characteristically described as underdogs, as outsiders, as loners, And Diefenbaker was definitely an outsider. There's no question about that. He was, although technically a man of parliament, had been in House of Commons for 16 years at that point, he really made his name outside parliament because he had a large following amongst those who followed civil liberties cases and was very popular on the hustings, going out and speaking to groups and political rallies, that sort of thing. But he basically bypassed uh, the House of Commons. He didn't really make his name that way.
0: So moving to today, can you describe how his populism compares to, for example, Pierre Poilievre's populism, the current leader of the Conservative Party of Canada?
1: Good question. Uh, Pierre Poilievre seems to fall into those categories. Uh, He has been described as very much an outsider, Uh, Someone who speaks directly to the people can relate to them and who has very keen, very, I would say, sharp sense of what the issues are to connect with people. So, for example, risky strategy when he supported the truckers and their convoy or when he supported the anti-mandate group, that sort of thing. Risky strategies, but he nonetheless spoke to people at least a number of them, that were concerned about those issues. And I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago in Toronto. He held a rally when he was just about to become leader of the party. And people lined up to have their autograph from him. And that's the same as Stephen Baker. There was a parallel there. Now, in many ways, they were quite different. I mean, trying to draw parallels between Various political figures in Canadian politics, at least, is a bit of a mug's game, but they certainly shared those three or four attributes or characteristics.
0: Right. Now, let's move to John Diefenbaker in terms of how he even gained the leadership of the PC party in 1956. And he very much was an outsider within the establishment of the progressive conservative party in many respects. That's a little different than Pierre Polyev. But how did he manage to pull this off given his failures to try to gain the leadership before that time?
1: He had run twice for the progressive conservative Party leadership, nineteen forty-two and nineteen forty-eight. He did not succeed either time, obviously. And in nineteen fifty-six, it was quite different because at that point he had, as I mentioned just a moment ago, he had established a national reputation as a defender of civil liberties and individual rights, and he, he pressed that very strongly. Uh, he was also a brilliant defense lawyer. I think he defended something like 28 individuals who were charged with murder, and he got 26 of them off, There were 26 acquittals, which is quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And every time he did that, having become a member of the B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan and Ontario bars, every time he did that, he made the press locally. So there was a bit of a consciousness out there of Diefenbaker, the party. In Parliament, the Progressive Conservatives were very much dominated by the old way in Toronto, southern Ontario. The Toronto Tories had more or less determined the leadership under George Drew, the previous leader, and that sort of thing. So Diefenbaker broke with that, and he really won the leadership in 1956 on the first ballot with over 60% of the vote by appealing as I mentioned earlier about a populist leader, appealing directly to the delegates and speaking to them about what really mattered in their lives. In
0: 1957, uh, the Liberal Party of Canada under Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent expected to coast to victory. Instead, the progressive Conservatives defeated them. And why did almost everyone, as well as the public opinion polls of the day, get it so wrong?
1: My reading of that period is that Everyone assumed, as you point out, that the liberals would be back in. This is true to the level of politicians and the media and, indeed, the public opinion polls. But to get the answer to that, I think you really have to go back to what Diefenbaker was able to do. He was able to connect with people, and his rallies became larger and larger. And they drew in people who... Previously had never voted, and if they certainly had voted, they likely had not voted conservative. And that is kind of an undetected element in the 57 election. The media got that wrong. The public opinion polls got it wrong. Mm -hmm. What they failed to realize that they had this sleeper on their hand, John Diefenbaker, who was able to speak directly to the people and build a successful campaign on that. He didn't have much of an organization. He had very little money, Uh, surprisingly, the liberals certainly monopolized the financial side of of electoral politics at that time. But what he was able to do was connect. And I I return to that word. His style was unmistakably that of what I call an evangelical preacher, kind of a secular version of that, which is where the title of this book comes from, by the way, Revival and Change. He revived the Tory party from a kind of dormant party described by Dalton Camp famously as uh, almost brain-dead at the time, uh, and he revived that.
0: So I was struck by the contrast between Saint Laurent and Diefenbaker, uh, which you described so well in the book. What were the most important differences between the two PMs?
1: The obvious difference was age. Saint Laurent turned 75, During the 1957 campaign, Diefenbaker was 61. So there was a 14-year spread between the two men. Saint Laurent was very well-liked. He was hugely popular. His nickname through most of Canada was Uncle Louis. Mm -hmm. And he was known in Quebec as Papa Louis. But in any event, he had that kind of warm, almost like everyone's favorite relative, Everyone seemed to know Louis, Louis St. So he was popular in that way. But as 1957 rolled around, he had come through a bruising year in Parliament, but come through a bruising year, and that was showing he was less active. He delayed campaigning in 1957 for 10 days, and that gave Ethan Baker a huge lead, not only with rallies, but also media attention as well. Saint Laurent was less energized and indeed became rather surly as the campaign went along, didn't deal with Heckler as well. So there was a contrast on that point. Diefenbaker, on the other hand, was just like a spring chicken. He got really into it, and the crowds were growing exponentially as the campaign went along. One of his advisors said, this is George Hees, MP from Toronto, who backed Diefenbaker, who said he saw that campaign turn around in the Conservatives' favor in Vancouver. He said there was a powerful speech by Baker, packed auditorium in Vancouver, and he said, the press don't know this, the public opinion polls don't know it, but I know it. We won the election at that point.
0: Fascinating. You summarized the issues of the 1957 election campaign, but I was wondering if you could pick the one that turned out to be the single most important issue and tell us why you think it was the most important issue.
1: Undoubtedly, it was the Liberals' longevity. They had been in office 22 years at that point. They had been led for over two decades, by Mackenzie King, and he was immediately followed by Louis Saint Laurent, who was prime minister for nine years. But in all, the party had been in office for 22 uninterrupted years. Mm -hmm. Some of the men in the cabinet, C.D. Howe, Jimmy Gardner, and one or two others, had actually been in that cabinet for the full 22 years. And in Gardner's case, he actually held the same portfolio, Minister of Agriculture, But in truth, they were showing their age. They were also cocky, Mm -hmm. arrogant. They failed to realize how incredibly powerful the oratory of Diefenbaker was in terms of capturing public attention. Saint Laurent was no match for Diefenbaker in that respect. Diefenbaker loved television. And television was a brand new medium on the scene. I think at the beginning of the 1950s, there were only about 200,000 sets in television sets in Canada. By 1956, 57, there were something like four and a half million. And there was only one channel, either Radio Canada in French or CBC in English. Mm-hmm. So people turned on and they saw Baker, who would often speak extemporaneously, unscripted. And he captured people's attention that way. St. was no match. Actually, St. did not even like television. He had very staid presence on television, which is sort of surprising for a man who was as avuncular as he was.
0: So in terms of the results of the 1957 election, how did the PCs manage to gain support in Western and Atlantic Canada after so many years being the party of Southern Ontario and Bay Street. And I know that's a bit of a caricature, but they had almost become a regional party, and yet Diefenbaker managed to get support from almost everywhere across the country, except for Quebec in that election.
1: Well, oh, you're absolutely right, Greg. The conservatives, the progressive conservatives, as they were then, were definitely a regional party. There's no doubt about it. They had virtually no presence in Western Canada. They had two or three MPs from British Columbia, one from Alberta, one from Saskatchewan, and a couple from Manitoba. So perhaps eight or 10 at the very most from Western Canada. About uh, half that number, four or five from Atlantic Canada, four or five from Quebec, all Anglophone seats, by the way. Mm -hmm. Their bastion of support was Toronto and the area around Toronto what we would now call 905, of course. But in any event, it was a Toronto party. That's what it was. The Toronto Tories were basically owned that party. And how he managed to turn that around, very interesting. In 57, he didn't actually do very well in Western Canada. Again, there was just one or two from Alberta, one from Saskatchewan in 57, one or two, and the same in British Columbia It wasn't until 1958 that he actually did well out here. What made the difference in that election was Ontario. And the Ontario conservative machine of Leslie Frost, longtime premier and leader of the conservatives in Ontario, they swung behind Diefenbaker. It's interesting that Frost himself had not supported George Drew, the previous premier of Ontario. remained neutral in the two elections that George Drew fought as leader of the Conservative Party federally. And that was, I'm sure, very painful for George Drew. But on the other hand, it was a very important signal when Frost openly supported John Diefenbaker and he swung his machine behind him. So the Tories went in Ontario from something like 34 seats that they had in Ontario to something like 61. They almost doubled the number of seats. And they can thank Leslie Frost for that. Right. Also in the Maritimes, a couple of the premiers, notably Bob Stanfield in Nova Scotia, swung behind Diefenbaker. Diefenbaker had promised that the Atlantic Equalization Fund would be established in a way that would be much more favorable to the Atlantic provinces. So the conservative leaders in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI backed out. So there was regional support there for the Conservatives in 57, regional support in Ontario, but not from the West. And Quebec, again, was a bit of a a no man's land for Conservatives in 57. That all changed in 58, of course.
0: Well, that brings us to the election of 1958. And so please describe the events that led to this election so short a time after the 57 election and what created what is still remarkable, this momentous landslide for the Diefenbaker government. I completely understand your analysis in the book, how this was the major breakthrough for the progressive conservatives and also how it was a real disaster for the liberals, the CCF and social credit, all of whom had to completely reconsider their position in party politics as a result of the 1958 election.
1: The Conservatives hit the ground running when they won the election, and in 57, the Conservatives did not win the greatest number of votes. That still went to the Liberals, largely because of Quebec. Saint Laurent succeeded once again in winning Quebec rather massively. But the Conservatives offset that by their gains in Ontario. Mm-hmm. The Conservatives ended up with more seats, but fewer votes than the Liberals. Nonetheless, uh, they chose, the Liberals chose to uh, step down and allow Baker to take over as Prime Minister in a minority parliament. So once they got their cabinet together, they hit the ground running and they loosened the purse strings. Uh, there were all kinds of new initiatives that were undertaken. Pay increases for the military, for public service, uh, increase in old age pension for the senior citizens, all kinds of farm stabilization programs. The fisheries, they benefited as well on both coasts. And the Atlantic provinces had a new brand-new equalization formula applied to them, and on and on it went. So it was certainly a contrast to the old liberal regime of Saint-Laurent that was fairly tight-fisted. They became known as the Six-Buck Boys in 1956-57 because they didn't increase the old-age pensions, and it was $6 a person, I think, at that point. So that was one thing that changed, Saint Laurent stepped down and he was succeeded by Lester Pearson, who himself was a very popular man for obvious reasons. He had made his name largely on the international stage. And Lester Pearson took over the leadership in 1958 in January of the Liberal Party, leading the opposition, and he made an absolutely catastrophic mistake. His maiden speech as leader of the opposition called on Diefenbaker and the government to resign and allow the liberals to go back into office. Well, that was tailor-made for someone of Diefenbaker's oratorical ability, and he let them have it. Paul Martin, who was a close colleague of Lester Pearson's in the Liberal Party, said that was the finest speech that Diefenbaker ever gave in his life. Uh, And on and on it went. And he tore the liberals apart by saying, once again, this is the old liberal arrogance that we had seen for the last few years before the 57 election. And all he had to do then was call the 58 election. He had public opinion on his side. He certainly had introduced various financial measures that made it easier, uh, made it more attractive, I should say, for the government to move ahead than had been the case with the Liberals when they were so tight-fisted. And he campaigned brilliantly. The campaign kicked off in 1958 in Winnipeg at the old Winnipeg Auditorium, which holds, I think, something like 6,000 people. The doors closed an hour before Baker was to speak. It was packed, and the crowd outside knocked the doors down, and rushed in. I mean, that that's what was happening across the country. And at that point, Maurice Duplessis, who was premier of Quebec, Union National, and who had been at one time conservative, saw the writing on the wall and knew immediately what he should do. He should do what Leslie Frost did in Ontario, support Baker, which he did in Quebec and Diefenbaker went on to win two-thirds of the seats in Quebec, unprecedented. Not since the time of John A. Macdonald had a conservative leader done so well in Quebec. And he owed that all to Maurice Duplessis and his organization. And more important from the standpoint of the party in the long run was that Diefenbaker finally made a breakthrough in Western Canada. So in Manitoba, for example... Every one of the 14 seats went conservative. The same in Alberta, all but one in Saskatchewan, the great majority in British Columbia. So he won right across the country. He built a national party, which is what he wanted to, to do. His great belief was in one Canada, and he thought that the conservatives could deliver on that. Sadly, I mean, from the standpoint of Diefenbaker, that didn't quite work, because as we'll see down the line... It didn't resonate in parts of Canada, like Quebec principally.
0: But it certainly resonated in 1958, and I keep thinking about the fact that he basically was able to tear down fortresses that had been constructed by the CCF and social credit as well as the liberals in various other parts of the country. And he was able to do so in part because he had a platform, a progressive platform, that emphasize something quite different than the liberals, as you mentioned, but also very different, a major departure from the conservative party of the past. And so he became, in a sense, the Diefenbaker party, as opposed to the progressive conservative party.
1: You're absolutely right on that. At that point was the Diefenbaker party, and it was called the Diefenbaker revolution. The slogans that were put up all across the country was re-elect a majority Diefenbaker government. And another slogan that was, again, it goes back to this theme of revival and the kind of secular evangelicalism of the whole Diefenbaker support was follow John. He talked about having a vision, I mean, these are important words from the standpoint of analyzing what was behind his appeal. His vision of the North, opening up the North. But, as you point out, he also had a very progressive platform, promising new support programs for various groups, including, of course, uh, Western Canadian farmers who had been pressing for change from the Liberals but didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, Ethan Baker recreated the Conservative Party in a completely new mold. And in the course of that, effectively ended social credit as a force, largely in Alberta, and certainly forced the CCF, who were reduced to eight members in parliament, and even their leader, a very popular man by the name of M.J. Coldwell, even the leader was uh, defeated, forced them to regroup And start again, as we know now, of course, they joined with the Canadian Labour Congress in 1961 and formed what we now call the NDP, the New Democratic Party. Social credit never really fully recovered. They made a little breakthrough in the 60s in Quebec, but then that was it. So by the early 70s, they had disappeared from the public scene. Not so the NDP. They uh, very astutely recreated themselves. But they had moved from the old bastion of agrarian socialism, principally in Saskatchewan, but other parts of Canada, but principally in Saskatchewan, and became a national party based more than uh, had been anticipated in metropolitan areas such as Vancouver, Toronto, and in other parts of Canada such as Cape Breton Island and that sort of thing, but. What's important here is the parties were about change. And that's one of the lasting legacies of the whole Diefenbaker period. Uh, Parties were forced to change.
0: And before we discuss that long-term legacy, it was a watershed moment for the Progressive Conservative Party, but it was also a watershed moment for Liberals, CCF, and Social Credit, as you mentioned. So what did those parties do in response to... Their enormous defeat, some would call it collapse, in 1958. In
1: 1958, the liberals were reduced to the smallest number of seats they had ever had. I think it was 49 uh, under Lester Pearson's leadership. And they were demoralized. They lost their financial support. They had several former cabinet ministers who were defeated. The party was organizationally in disarray it had effectively been run by a small band of dedicated liberals and most of them either retired or were gone from the political scene so they were in bad shape Mm
2: -hmm.
1: what Pearson did was one of the I think most interesting developments of this period he called a thinkers conference now it has a kind of a fancy name for it, but a thinker's conference. In Kingston. In Kingston in 1960. And to that, he invited not members of parliament so much, he sort of ignored them, but he invited men and women who were young, who were activists, and who might naturally have had an appeal to the NDP. But these young men and women went to Kingston and they were reformers. They were slightly left center. They were more pro-nationalist, pro-Canadian than had been the case of the uh, Saint Laurent liberals. And Pearson effectively regrouped. He also took a page from Baker's playbook. Diefenbaker in 57 and then again in 58 made a point of choosing candidates in metropolitan areas such as Toronto who had ethnic appeal. And sure enough, they won seats that they hadn't won before. High Park and some of the other seats in downtown Toronto that had large uh, immigrant populations. Pearson copied that. And by 1962, he had appointed uh, an ethnic liaison officer on behalf of the party to recruit candidates who would widen the base of the, the party. So the Liberals rebranded themselves, and by 1963, this activist, reform-minded, slightly left-of-center, pro-nationalist group came into office by defeating the Diefenbaker government in 1963. The CCF in Saskatchewan, led by Tommy Douglas and some of the other stalwarts, David Lewis in Toronto, uh, Frank Scott in Montreal at McGill... And people of that sort recognized that the CCF was not going to go anywhere unless it began to change. And so, together with a longtime member of parliament, CCF from North Winnipeg, Stanley Knowles, they banded together and created a new party, which the next year, 1961, became the New Democratic Party, chose Tommy Douglas as their leader, and joined with the Canadian Labor Congress in creating this new party, which effectively brought to an end their old base of support in Saskatchewan. The party moved away from Saskatchewan, as it were, and for the most part, became a much more urban party. Social credit all but disappeared. They made a brief, as I mentioned, brief appearance in Quebec under uh, kind of a firebrand politician from Quebec, Raul Coet but uh, it didn't really go anywhere. So they just effectively disappeared.
0: Can you briefly summarize then the long-term legacy of the 1957 and 58 elections? The legacy that we're still living with today?
1: I sure can. I would start by pointing out that Ethan Baker did a lot of things which were hailed at the time as important changes. And certainly with time... I think we can say that they actually set the stage for more fundamental changes. For example, his was the first cabinet with uh, a female representative. He made a point of appointing Ellen Fairclough from Hamilton to the cabinet and giving her fairly important portfolio, citizenship and immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Starr, the first Ukrainian, appointed to the cabinet. So he began what I would call the road to diversity in Canada, mm-hmm. where the stage was actually laid for including new people, people who had not been represented in Canada so well, it's certainly at the cabinet level, and making it more diverse and more representative of the Canadian population. And when uh, Justin Trudeau quipped in 2015 that he had you know, a gender equal cabinet, because it's 2015, he said... Well, he was building on the legacy of John Diefenbaker's of reaching out and bringing in new people into the cabinet, into the federal institutions. Diefenbaker also went out of his way to work with and to encourage Native Canadians, uh, specifically status Indians, to become part of the Canadian fabric. So he uh, appointed the first status Indian to the Senate. And as a result, gained a certain amount of support there. It was made an Indian chief by two or three different groups in, in Canada, including the Whitecap Reserve. Uh, federal-provincial negotiations led to a whole new equalization formula, which has proved to be now more contentious again, but at least at the time was seen as an important breakthrough. Several royal commissions that he appointed, including the Hall Commission, uh, most importantly, I think, on health care led to the establishment of the uh, universal publicly funded health care system that we have. Even Baker also opposed apartheid in South Africa and was instrumental along with two or three other countries, India was one of them, in having South Africa withdraw from the Commonwealth over apartheid. And Nelson Mandela, years later, In addressing the Canadian Parliament when he was made an honorary citizen of Canada, singled out John Diefenbaker as having played such an important part in bringing an end to apartheid in South Africa. The Roads to Resources program had a lasting impact on development, particularly of mining in northern Canada. The right to vote, as I say, was extended to status Indians. So there were several important legacies that I could point to. The last one I would mention is the legacy of the party system. And I think here, there's no question whatsoever. Now the conservatives, not the progressive conservatives, but the latest iteration of the conservatives, together in the elections of 1993 through the most recent federal election, 2021, they've won 70% of the seats in the four Western provinces. And that's a legacy. But also the flip side of that, if I may say so, Greg, is that it was the beginning of the breakdown of the old national party system, of a coalition based on various regions. The party system has become much more regionalized than it ever was before. The liberals are much more dependent on Ontario. The conservatives in Western Canada, which is kind of a, a neat reversal of fortunes from what it has been in the period of Saint Laurent and Mackenzie King. So those are a few of the important legacies that I could refer to.
0: John, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, Greg, I enjoyed it. It's been nice to chat with you.
0: My guest today was John C. Courtney. His book, Revival and Change, the 1957 and 1958 Diefenbaker Elections, was published by UBC Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, Let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. This particular podcast on Canadian political history was sponsored by Don Bourgeois and Susan Campbell of Kitchener, Ontario. My name is Greg Marsheldon. This interview was recorded on September 27th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press journal team who also support the Champlain Society.